right. Thank you, Jenny. Hey, listen, can we just take a minute and celebrate good stuff? Baptisms this morning. I don't know if you've been driving around this week. God has used his paintbrush in some beautiful ways outside. Can we just celebrate God's goodness just right now? Can we celebrate that? Yeah. I have thoroughly enjoyed this series, and I can't wait to see what God does in us and through us today, this morning, right now. For the last seven weeks, as we have been talking about this super important subject, one life, evangelism. There's a figure, I bet you can guess who I'm talking about, that has come to my attention, come to my mind multiple times. A gentleman, he passed away just a few years ago in 2018. I was on a whim stopping. Uh, it was a trip. It was a work trip. I was a pastor serving at a different church during that era, uh, just a couple years before that. I think it was 2015. And uh, I grabbed a couple of my staff, and we flew out to North Carolina, and then South Carolina, we wanted to check out a couple of churches in that area. And one of them, actually, we were meeting with them to learn about their parking ministry, and we were bringing that back and seeking to implement that at the church I was serving at the time. On a whim, the plane landed, we realized we've got a few hours before we need to be there. Let's stop. Let's make a stop. One of the guys with me said, you know, we're spitting distance from Billy Graham's library. Can we stop by there? I said, sure. It kind of took me uh, by surprise. I, I didn't realize what I was getting into. It was a moving experience. If you're ever in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, I would encourage you to stop by and check it out. Here's a picture that just rained, and you can see Billy Graham Library. I almost said presidential library. He wasn't a president. But he was friends to an awful lot of our presidents, a counselor to presidents, a spiritual advocate an evangelist in some amazing ways. Billy Graham, it has said, he spoke and preached to over 210 million people in his lifetime. God used him in some amazing ways. And as I was wandering around through this space, I was reminded of that. Here's another photo. Beautiful grounds, beautiful setting. I believe they even moved his, his birthplace, his family home, to this location. Here's a picture of that. Kind of a neat, quaint house. I believe his dad built this house. Farm kid, Billy Graham. He came from kind of poor, came from humble beginnings. Here's the next photograph I want to show you. As I was wandering around his house, I just was struck by the number of Bibles. Billy Graham studied from those Bibles, and then he valued Scripture. In this next picture, I, I kind of zoomed in. It was open. Maybe you recognize the text. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world... Billy Graham gave invitations many times, including in this location. Let's look at the next slide. This is the end of the walkthrough, the end of the experience. It was kind of celebrating what had happened during his lifetime. He was still alive, remember, at this point. But it actually concluded, I thought this was so cool, with a gospel invitation, a challenge. Have you asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life? If you have not, here's an opportunity to lean in to that greatest opportunity that God gives each and every one of us, his kids. Even in the celebration of his life, there was an invitation offered. He died almost three years later. He was 99 years old. I love this quote from Billy Graham. Let me look at this. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. 
I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. I love that. In living and dying, he believed this. But you have to ask the question, why was what he did so powerful in so many people's lives? What was his secret? Was it his preaching? He's a good preacher. But he, by his own admission, would say he's no scholar. He admitted there are better preachers than I am, is what he said. I've heard some amazing preachers in my life. I don't think it was Billy Graham's preaching. Was it his organization? His organization was incredible, yeah. I mean, there were some amazing things that were accomplished through the Billy Graham Association, but no, I don't think it was that. Was it technology? Well, that had an element, right? He leveraged the power of radio in 1949. There was a cutting-edge opportunity there. He was on the leading edge of technology with the radio. I don't think that's what it was. I don't think it was his personality. I don't think it was his leadership. What was it? He asked the same question. Check out this quote. He asked the question. He said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, why me, Lord? Why did you choose a farm boy from North Carolina to preach to so many people, to have such a wonderful team of associates, and to be a part of what you were doing in the latter half of the 20th century? Why, God? By the way, he's had the opportunity to ask God that question now. Why? Well, what was his secret I believe to the depth of my being that he was filled with the Holy Spirit of God. That's the secret. God's Spirit was in him. And might I suggest that that same Spirit of God, if you've asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, that same Spirit of God is inside of you as well. The question is, are you willing Are you available to be used by him? There's a call to action today at the end of this message. There's a moment we're going to invite you, each one of us, to take an action step to say, yeah, God, use me how you will. I have one life to invest. Who is the one life you're calling me to invest in? I want to declare it. I want to kind of put it out there. This is the end of a message series, but we're praying that it's the beginning of a movement here in and through our church. We pray this does not end today. Let's recap, though. Let's talk about what we've been talking about. Week one, there was a challenge to light your world. Perhaps you remember those pathetic glow sticks that I handed out. They burned out by the end of the day. Today, we want to redeem that. Today, we want to put into action an action step to go light our world. And God, use us toward that end because we're available. We're willing. Week two, we listened. We listened. We had a spiritual explorers panel. People who are far from God, and we listened to them as they told their stories. And we we learned that that's a pretty important action step through this whole thing. Week three, Gary Poole, nationally recognized expert in evangelism, he came and he talked about this system, this idea of 3D1. And then for the rest of the time together, we've teased it out. 3D1, step one is develop friendships. What relationships in your life can you take deeper for gospel purposes? The second week in that, we talked about how we discover stories. We listen. Got to tie back to this week. Last week, we talked about how do we discern next steps. How do we be available? How do we be willing? And today, I want to challenge you that this is not the end. This is the beginning. God's taking us somewhere. Let's make sure we're obedient to follow him where he calls. Okay, to do that, I want to study the first few verses in the book of Acts. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and grab that, pull it out. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. 
we're going to discover that Acts is kind of the second volume of a two-volume writing. Luke writes the gospel of Luke. And we see right here at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he's referencing that gospel narrative. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus. Theophilus is a real person, I believe, but it's also, it kind of has a double meaning. Theophilus means friend of God. So any of us who call ourselves friends of God, this is written to us as well. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, Jesus suffered. As he, after he died, he also presented himself alive then to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them a whole bunch of people over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. After Jesus' horrible crucifixion, you get this incredible turnaround here in the text. This is good news for all. God is calling us to shine our light let your light shine. Yeah, but, but how? I want to grab here from the first several verses of the book of Acts, I want to grab four calls to action. If you're taking notes, and I sure hope you are, maybe you still have that personal journal with you, grab that, pull that out, you can write some notes in there. These are four calls to action straight out of this text. Here's the first one. Rethink your life. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? You're looking at this. Where do I go from here? Can I challenge you to rethink your life? Wherever you are right now, this moment in your life, it's not the end. It's the beginning. This rhythm we find all throughout Scripture. There's this pattern in Scripture. There's living, then there's dying, then there's rising. We see it over and over again. We could go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis. Chapter 12, God speaks to Abram, and he says, oh, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. Everybody who blesses you, I'm going to bless. Whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's speaking ahead toward Jesus. This is Genesis 12, but the problem is Abraham doesn't have a son. Isaac finally does have a son, the child of the promise. There's this moment we see where Abraham, he's ready to kill Isaac. God stays his hand. But God. Abraham is thinking, I've got to do this. But God. That phrase, but God. Have you ever studied that? Open up your Bible sometime and just read the number of times that phrase occurs. But God. We think we're called to do this, but God. The same thing happens with Joseph, right? He's got this dream and his brothers throw him into a pit. He gets sold to Egypt. He's put into prison. It looks dark. It looks despaired to uh, Joseph. But God rises him up, second over all of Egypt, saves his family from starvation. There's a lineage, and the whole story of the Old Testament comes out of that moment. But God, Moses, my goodness, the people are in slavery. But God raises up a leader. He can't speak well, but God empowers him in amazing ways. The people are in slavery, but God rescues them. They get to the end or the edge of the Red Sea and they can't cross, but God provides a way. Over and over again, Elijah 
David. My goodness, you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, but God over and over again. In Jesus' ministry, this is constantly repeated. There's hope that happens from bad situations. There's tax collectors, but God. Prostitutes, but God redeems them. Adulterers, sick people, poor people, but God. Disabled people, skeptics, downtrodden, and on and on and on, but God redeems them and uses them in a powerful way to accomplish his purposes. Jesus' own life models this as well, right? He lived, he died, he arose. Look at what he said to his disciples. This is in John chapter 12. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You die so that a rebirth can happen. Rethink your life. It's not the end. It's the beginning. You might think it's over. Maybe you're in difficulty with a struggle right now. Could I suggest to you this might be the prelude to your greatest hour. God might want to use these things you're struggling with right now to create momentum for an even greater opportunity for spiritual influence. It could be that what's happening right now that you're feeling this great struggle that God wants to use it for his good for one life, to use your story in a powerful way even to redeem somebody else. So oftentimes we look at what's going on in our lives in any reasonable viewpoint. Your friends, your coworkers, your family would say, come on, my circumstances, your circumstances, this is awful what you're living in right now. But the Bible viewpoint would say, but God. What's right around the corner? Today is the day to rethink your life. God wants to use you as a spiritual influencer, maybe in ways that you cannot even imagine. So how does that happen? Remember I said there's four calls to action coming out of the text here. The second one, if you're taking notes, write this down. Encounter the living Christ. And if you do that, if you really encounter Jesus, you cannot be unchanged. He changes you. You can't be unchanged. We see this in the New Testament. By the way, this is not about encountering Bible verses or encountering morality or encountering the right way to live. No, no, no. This is about encountering the living Jesus. Let's look at the text. Let's go back and look at this again. I wrote the first narrative about all that Jesus began to do and teach after he'd given instructions the apostles he had chosen. The Holy Spirit is a piece of this. Let's keep reading. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. Listen, everything that follows in the book of Acts is created out of what happened in volume one in the book of Luke. There's a personal encounter with Jesus. Here's the model we see in the Gospels, all of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Jesus' ministry on display. We see the description of his death and ultimately his resurrection. We see appearances after the resurrection, and then we see the launch of the kingdom of God. We still live in that era today. So can I challenge you to deepen your connection to Jesus? This is the starting point of your personal transformation and influence. Has your mind ever entertained the idea, the thought that you might actually need, you might actually greatly need the mercy and the compassion of God? You need him in your life. And that's just the beginning point. You go from there, and your daily spiritual connection to Jesus is the key to your transformation and your spiritual influence. 
Remember his parting instructions. He launches the kingdom of God with these words, I am with you always. Say that again. I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. We still live in that same era that he launches with the apostles. I'm with you. And he calls through this for community and world transformation. And he calls for us to be a part of that, to be used by God, mobilizing everybody's God-given potential to deeply love Christ and to love their neighbors. He's calling you, he's calling me to spiritual influence. Remember, there's four calls to action. Here's the third one. Be empowered. Be empowered way beyond your plans and your abilities. I've been motivated the last couple of weeks to clean my garage. Motivated has a name. Her name is Dawn. And she said, hey, am I going to get to park in the uh, garage this winter or not? I have way too many hobbies, and I've got too many half-done projects, and it was a mess. The garage was a mess. In my cleaning, I sold a bunch of stuff on Facebook Marketplace. Yesterday, I painted the garage door. It was a beautiful day for that. It needed it. I rediscovered, and I even hesitate to say this, I'm kind of excited about snow. I probably just jinxed something there, didn't I? I found my snowblower underneath all of my mess. I bought a snowblower just a few years ago. I switched to battery-operated mowers, and uh, I bought a used one off of Facebook Marketplace, and I discovered that the batteries don't last forever. That's how they get you. And then I went to buy the new ones and realized, oh, it was just as cheap for me to buy a clearance deal on a snowblower and use those batteries because you use the same batteries in that ecosystem. That's also how they get you. Last year, for the first time, I used my snowblower. And for, I don't know, like 27 years of my adult life, I've been out there shoveling the snow like all the other schmucks. (laughs) Last year, I discovered, man, there is some power to be found in having a snowblower. That sucker just flings the snow. I had so much fun, I was doing my neighbor's yard, my other neighbor's yard, and the sidewalks all through the neighborhood. I'll come to your house. It's awesome. Be empowered. Not just a snowblower in your life. You have something better. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling inside of you. A couple of observations here straight out of the text. Let's keep reading. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you've heard me speak about, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here's the line. In a few days. Wait for the promise. It could be just a few days away. Some of you, you've been, I don't know about this whole one life thing. I'm not sure who I'm supposed to be investing in. Well, keep asking. Ask the Holy Spirit to nudge you. The answer could just be a few days away. This baptism idea, John's baptism that gets referenced there, it was symbolic. Jesus' baptism was a baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the actual thing. This is the real deal. By the way, If you've asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, you get to live in that same tradition as well. The apostles on the day of Pentecost, they begin this winning streak in their life when the Holy Spirit comes on them in power. When you accept Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, when you're baptized into Christ, guess what? You get the gift of the Holy Spirit in your life as well. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13 says it this way, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greek, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. How about this, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Don't lean into your own power. Lean into his. Our human ideas and abilities, they're actually limited. Let's go back to the text. Look at this again. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Peter's saying, yeah, that's super cool. So Jesus, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Jesus responds, we too, though, have a limited perspective much of the time. This whole series is one life. Last week I talked about the top ten objections that we might feel toward this. The number one is I don't have time. But what we really mean by that is I don't want to do this. I'm nervous. I'm afraid. I'm worried what people think. I don't know. You fill in the blank. What are you feeling? Remember our human ideas and our abilities are limited. Look at Jesus' response here. He blows them away with his answer. He says in verse 7, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. This is a polite way of saying M-Y-O-B. Mind your own business. This is not your business. Oh, one of these days Jesus is coming back and he will reign over the earth, but it's not up to you. It's not your business to know that. Well, what is your business? Let's keep reading, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And here, here's your business. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're going to have power, and you're going to need it. You're going to be my witnesses. What's the job of a witness in the courtroom is to testify to what they've seen, right? This word is used 39 times in the book of Acts alone. That's your business. That's your job is to simply testify, to bear witness to the power of what you've seen God do in your life, and you can do that. It's your job description. It's what you're called to. You're going to go everywhere. John chapter 14, verse 12 says this, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus is saying, I'm counting on you to carry on this one life initiative. Can we talk about availability? We lean so much in our own ability, lean not on your own understanding, right? But in all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll make your paths straight, straight out of Scripture. We spend too much time thinking about, well, I don't know if I have what it takes. Show up. Just show up. There's this Billy Graham quote. I love this. He talks about showing up. I want people to remember me that I was faithful. I showed up. I was there. I did it. Faithful to the gospel, faithful to the call that God gave me. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him why he called me because I was much more used to milking cows and working on the farm than I was preaching. Availability versus ability. Don't make it about your ability. Just be available for God to use you in a powerful way. The question is, will you show up? 
because the Holy Spirit empowers us far beyond our human ideas and our abilities. God is calling you to be Dr. Henry Walton Jones, Jr. You know who that is? You know him as Indiana Jones. God is calling you to be Raiders of the Lost Ark. We settle for a dusty professor teaching in the back halls of Princeton. I think that God, I think most Christians are wired deep down. We want to be Indiana Jones for Jesus. So be available. It's not about your ability. It's about his. Four calls to action. Here's number four. Arise with prayerful anticipation to become humble and bold spiritual influencers. Arise. Take an action step. By the way, did you pray through our prayer experience this past week? If you have not yet done that, I want to challenge you to do that. You go to our website, venturechristian.church slash one life. There you can find the digital version of our prayer experience. You should do that. Take some time to walk through the beautiful fall foliage this week and pray. Pray about the one life that God has called you to invest. Who is the one life he's calling you to invest in? Arise with prayerful anticipation. Verse 9, check this out. Let's keep reading in Acts. After he'd said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. He's gone. Now what? Simultaneously, this is the humble beginning as it is a glorious end. Because as Jesus leaves, their work begins. Let's continue to read from the scene, shall we? In verse 10, while he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. They're standing there looking upward, and their hearts are pounding. They're stunned. And God gives them, from that point forward, some missional moxie. He's coming back. You're playing with house money. Bet the farm. Take a risk. You have one life to invest. Who's the one life you're investing in? We've looked at that passage several times through this. Lord, teach us to number our days in Psalm 90 that we may gain a heart of wisdom. You have one life to invest. Are you willing? Are you willing? Your entire life up until this point, maybe the entire life God has given you has been preparing you for this day. It's not the end. It's the beginning. But are you willing? I want you to watch this story. And as you watch this story, would you just simply look inward and ask yourself, why not me? I have one life to invest. I'm willing to invest this for Jesus. See if you can find yourself in this story. Check this out. I really don't know what prompted me to go across the street. I just did.
I grew up in a Christian church. When I was 14, uh, my dad got sick with cancer. And a lot of people in the church had come up to me and, and said that it says in John 14, 14, that Jesus said, if you ask for anything in my name, it will be given to you. I prayed you know, that my dad would get better. As, as the weeks went on, he continued to get a little worse. Started playing, let's make a deal uh, with God. And, and told God that, you know, I'll do anything, you know, just make my dad better. That didn't work. So then I offered to change places with my dad, and, and that didn't work. And then six weeks after he went in the hospital, he died. And the same people who told me about John 14, 14 came up to me at the funeral and just kind of patted me on the back and said, you know, so sorry about your dad. It just kind of turned me off to God and to church for um, probably about 20 years. There came a time when I was divorced, working 70, 80 hours a week, wasn't seeing my daughter at all. Can we stop? Mm -hmm. Okay. I spent a lot of time alone, and there were railroad tracks behind the addition that we lived in. And so I used to spend a lot of time just just walking on the railroad tracks back there. One day, uh, it was in March of 72, and uh, a train was coming down the tracks, and I just decided I wasn't gonna get off the tracks. Uh -oh. Sorry. <clears throat> and so I just stood there, and I thought to myself, well, it, it'll only hurt for a second. Um, but then at the last second, I mean, truly the last second, um, I stepped off the tracks. And I just got on my knees. And I told God I couldn't do this anymore. And, um, You know, I'd like to say that um, that it was a, an instant transformation in my life, but it wasn't. And then shortly after, I met Diane, and I didn't know it at the time. Meeting Diane was, was part of my journey back. I went to church every Sunday, and I wanted to go, and he started going with me, you know, and it got him to wanting to learn more about the Bible. He started taking a Bible study class. Just grew from there, you know. Our neighbors across the street were a younger couple, Benita and her husband. I was preparing to go on a, a mission trip to Guyana. It was during that time that I walked across the street and talked to Benita. Steve and I really didn't have friends. We didn't socialize with people, but Rick and Diane, they were always very friendly. They would invite us to come over on their front porch and eat watermelon with them, or when I was out working in the yard, they would always make a point to wave, say hi. She liked to work outside in her flowers. If I saw her out, 
go over and we talk and we laugh for 10 minutes and I go back in. One, one winter day we had a, a heavy snow and I shoveled off my car and I shoveled off Diane's and you know I just went across the street and shoveled off Steve and Benita's car. It, it was you know, no big deal. I was just being neighborly. And I got up really early to a sound that was outside and I look out my window and Rick had plowed around both mine and Steve's cars and was scraping our windows. I don't know that I'd ever known anybody that would do something quietly without any fanfare or any acknowledgement for himself. I was a new teacher in the school that I was in. The environment was, I don't want to say hostile towards Christians, but it really pretty much was. It came to the point where I realized that I had, I couldn't ride the fence anymore. I had to decide what I believed about Jesus. And I was really leaning towards not believing. The only time my family, when I was growing up, ever went to church is when I was very young and then we stopped. They had done an altar call and my mom went up to give her life to Christ and it made my dad very angry. He um, said that she was choosing God over him. This is 50 years ago and they still haven't been back to church since. What prompted me to go across the street at that time, I was just on fire for God. I mean, I just had been attending these classes down at the Bible College and, um, you know, we were attending church. And he came over just like he does, you know, just came to check and say hi. And he asked me, what do I, what do I think about God? And I remember telling him, God and I are great. It's that whole Jesus thing I don't get. He told me that he and his wife were going to have a Bible study in their home and they would like for me to go. And I said, oh, sure. Which I have no idea why I would say that because I was not a social person. That was not something I have no idea why I would say yes. Probably because I trusted Rick. He said, and by the way, you're the only one so far. I didn't have a whole lot of church background growing up. Uh, my parents divorced when I was very young um, and church was just never a priority for our family. But I did get super involved in a youth group uh, when I was in late middle school, early high school. Got baptized at that church and my mom married the lead pastor's brother. Within a few months, he started to abuse her. She filed for divorce after about a year of marriage. And because she was getting divorced from the pastor's brother, the pastor and the elders asked her not to come back. I figured if that's what the church is like, if that's how they're gonna treat people who need them, then I'm probably not gonna be a part of that. I really thought that I was gonna live the life my mom had lived. And I really thought that Steve would divorce me. I came home from church with Rick and Diane one day and came in and he said, I don't want you going to that church anymore. And I thought, well, this is it. This is where I lose my husband. 
he said, I, I want us to find a church where we can both go. So we looked for probably a year. We went to a lot of different churches in the area and uh, we finally settled on Grace Church on 146th Street. We were at Grace for four and a half or five years until we felt like we needed to find a place where we could get more involved. For me, it was a slow process. It was a process of taking pieces of scripture and applying it to my life and realizing, oh, if that's true, then maybe this much is true. You know, hearing good biblical teaching and worshiping with a, with a church family. And over that time, over that process, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. So some friends of mine at work were starting this new church. I knew two people that were part of this new church called Genesis Church. And there were only 12 people that were part of the church and two of them were people I worked with. And so we came uh, before Genesis launched, they were doing some preview services. And clearly the church was small enough that they needed people to get involved. And they had a leadership team that was made up of people from the church, but also some other pastors. And as it started to become more independent, they were looking to form an elder board. And so the lead pastor asked me to be as part of the first elder team. Probably at the time I didn't realize the qualifications for an elder. And if I, if somebody asked me now, was I qualified to be an elder then? I would say, no, definitely not. But I felt like maybe I could, that was a way I could serve and a way I could uh, give my gifts to the Lord. And so. I serve two roles at Genesis. I serve as our campus pastor at our Noblesville campus. I'm also our executive pastor. And so in those roles as executive pastor, I kind of oversee the operations of the church, the day-to-day -day operations, the financial stuff, human resources stuff, uh, some of our ministry uh, things that we do. And that's a big part of my role here. I'm also a campus pastor, which means I teach on a fairly regular basis. I help figure out the, the kind of ministry events we're gonna offer at our Noblesville campus and lead our staff here at the Noblesville campus as well. 